We'll be reading the first 15 verses of Mark 1. And listen closely, for these are God's own words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As Wynn said to you guys, I am incredibly excited. We are incredibly excited to be back with you as your deacons or small group leaders or anybody will tell you. I've been anxious for you guys to be back for quite some time. Uh, many of you guys will know, as I said in that back room earlier, that last year was our first year as a college ministry. And as the semester wrapped up in May, our college deacons and I, we got together and we started evaluating what had happened. And we were incredibly encouraged by what the Lord did in our midst and in your lives. It was so encouraging hearing so many of you talk about your growth in the Lord, about being connected in community, about how you grew in understanding what the church was for and getting connected to other people within the church. And nearly immediately after we spent that time evaluating, we started thinking about this fall and praying that God would do far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine here in our midst, in this church, and on your campuses. And then we started wrestling through what God would have us do as a ministry here this year, how we can best serve you guys. And to be honest, as we started praying for you, um, I started to feel for you a little bit. And what I mean by that is this is an incredibly difficult and challenging time to be a college student because every single day you guys are being bombarded by some of the most difficult questions imaginable, questions about gender and sexuality and identity and race and politics and religion. What does it even look like for a Christian college student to think and wrestle with these things? And if you get on social media, like I know all of you do, you'll see people on both sides of every single issue, right? Claiming that Jesus is on their side and it can be totally overwhelming. Who's right and who's wrong and how do you even know? 
And so I thought maybe we can take this semester and we'll just go issue by issue and help you guys know what it looks like to be a faithful gospel witness on your campuses. But then I thought there's always going to be another issue. Another thing is going to come up. And hearing me, just some guy, lecture about these crazy difficult topics probably isn't going to be all that helpful. No, we need to think and talk about how a Christian engages the world, which means that we need to talk about what it actually means to be a Christian, which means we need to talk about Jesus, right? But here's what I mean by that. I want to tell you a cool story. So in 2013, there was this group of people that set about to renovate the Sforza Castle in Milan, Italy. And they entered this room called the Room of Planks. And as they did, they found a wall that was totally whitewashed, and they wanted to restore it to its original form. So they cleaned off the first layer of whitewash, and there was another layer. And they cleaned off that layer, and cleaned off the next layer, and cleaned off the next layer, until they had removed 17 layers of whitewash. And then what they saw took their breath away. Eventually, a mural that had been hidden for at least 500 years began to emerge. Underneath this whitewash, they saw a canopy of trees, and they saw some tree roots breaking through some rocks, and they knew that they were seeing the work of a master. You see, underneath that whitewash for all those years was a mural by the one and only Leonardo da Vinci. And my greatest prayer for you guys this year is that together we can peel back the whitewashed layers of cultural Christianity and catch a fresh and clear Jesus of who Jesus actually is, that his words and his actions would be appropriately shocking to us, that his message would be wonderful to us as it really is, that we would stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene as we just sang, and that the sheer beauty of who he is and what he's done would take our breaths away. And if you're a non-Christian in this room, or if you're just kind of checking out this whole Jesus thing, I am incredibly glad that you're here. And I'm going to be on front with you. It's my prayer that you would commit your whole self and your entire life to Jesus. But if I can borrow an analogy from a guy named Ben Stewart, uh, whose teaching on Mark has been incredibly beneficial for me, uh, alongside guys like Tim Keller and N.T. Wright, um, I understand that asking you right here and now to commit your life to Jesus is kind of like me saying to a girl in this room, hey, um, my buddy Chris is here tonight, and I really think that you would like him. Can I introduce you to him? And if you're on the trusting side, you might say, yeah, Matt, sure, you can introduce me. And then I say, okay, well, uh, just so you know, I am licensed in the state of Alabama to perform weddings, so whenever you're ready, I'll be here. And you might if you're overly inclined to trust me, which you shouldn't be, think, well, does he mean Chris Pine? Because then maybe. Or uh, you might be thinking, maybe Matt is sort of like one of those uh, vinyl-loving, thick-rimmed glass hipster kids who says, you know what? You'll really love Bob Dylan once you can make it past his voice. No, I don't want you to commit your life to somebody that you don't know because that would be an absolutely unreasonable request, right? I want you to take some time to get to know him. 
I want you to take some time to wrestle with this question, who is this guy, Jesus? And if you think you already know the answer to that question, that's okay. Let's dive in together because this is the most important question you will ask in your entire lives. Because since Jesus claimed to be God, we cannot look at him simply as some great moral teacher, right? Either his claims about being God are true, aren't true, sorry, and Jesus is insane or a liar, and we should read the Bible like we read the Odyssey, like a good piece of history, but moving on with our lives, or his claims are true, and that changes absolutely everything, right? It changes how we understand the world. It changes how we understand what we are for, how we find life and meaning and purpose, where we find joy, and on and on. And in order to let you fully and carefully examine Jesus for yourselves, to decide for yourselves whether Jesus is, in fact, who he claimed to be, we're going to spend our entire year looking at just one of the gospel stories, the gospel of Mark, my favorite, if I'm allowed to have favorites. I don't know if that's a thing with the Bible. It feels a little weird for me saying that. Why are we going to look at Mark? Well, for starters, Mark was the very first gospel that was written down. And in writing it down, Mark actually created an entirely new genre of literature. Listen to C.S. Lewis's description of it. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or else some unknown writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be a narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this, Lewis puts it subtly, simply has not learned to read. Mark was written in the 50s or 60s AD, which means that it's just 20 or 30 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And this is really important because it's recent enough to the events that it'd be like somebody telling you about what happened the day that Princess Diana died. Or explaining to you in the late 90s, hard as it may be for you to believe, how freaked out everyone was in the world that the calendars on our computers weren't, wouldn't be able to figure out how to flip to the year 2000. We thought that all of our bank accounts, our money was going to disappear, that every plane that was in the sky was going to crash. These were real fears, people. And what I mean by explaining this to you is to say that there are lots of people around that you could go and ask about this who could verify or discredit any story that I would try to tell about those events. And the same was true of Mark. But not only that, this guy named Papias, writing in 130 AD, he tells us that Mark was Peter's secretary and that he, quote, wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. In fact, you'll notice as we read through the Gospel of Mark together, there's almost no story where Peter isn't present because Mark's Gospel is the written account from the guy who knew Jesus better than anybody else and still, in spite of everything, believed he was God. Now, I want you to think about that just for a second. Imagine your best friend came up to you later on today or later on this week and said, hey, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I'm the God who made you. You think about how absolutely unbelievable that would be. The first call that you would make maybe to a counseling service on your campus, maybe to the police, maybe to a mental hospital, but you wouldn't think, yeah, that sounds reasonable. 
I'm gonna give up everything and bow down and worship you as God, right? Here is a guy who walked with Jesus every single day for at least three years and probably knew him for most of his life and still thought he was God. That's crazy if it's not true. And lastly, we're going to look at Mark because it's really blunt and it's full of fast-paced action. Mark would have killed it on Twitter, right? He tells all of his stories in about 140 characters. He's in a hurry to tell you something. In fact, he uses the word immediately 41 times in his gospel. He wants to show you that something absolutely earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting, and history-altering has happened, that God himself has broken into history and become a man. And let's dive back in. I'm going to read the first seven verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Maybe the first thing that you notice as we read this passage together is that Mark doesn't begin his story with sweet baby animals gathered around a serene, non-screaming child on a silent night, right? Mark wastes no time telling you that this guy, Jesus, he is the Christ. You've probably heard that word for most of your lives, but what is Christ? Who is the Christ? You see, the Old Testament, it tells the story of how God made absolutely everything. He created mankind in his own image. He created men and women for relationship with him and to bring his rule and reign to the whole world. But as the story goes, Adam and Eve in God's garden, they rebelled against God and the whole world fell under the curse of sin and death. But even in that garden, God made a startling promise to rescue his people and to redeem the world. In Genesis, we see that God makes promises to a guy named Abraham that through him and his family, the whole world is going to be blessed. And Abraham's family becomes the nation of Israel, and it seems that God's promises were coming to pass, but the nation of Israel is very short-lived. There's a guy named Saul that's king for a little bit, then David, then Solomon, then the kingdom gets divided. And then the northern kingdom, and a couple generations later, gets carried off into exile, and a couple generations later... In 587, the southern kingdom is carried off as well. And in many ways, it seems that God had abandoned his promises or abandoned his people. But throughout this Old Testament, and especially as the people are in exile, these prophets, these voices of God would speak, saying, there is one who is going to come, who's going to restore all things, who is going to bring God's rule and reign, who will set every wrong thing right. His kingdom will be one of righteousness and of peace. This Messiah, the Christ, will come. And right off the bat, Mark is telling you, this Jesus was that guy, the promised one, 
the one guy that God's people have been waiting for for generation after generation. And this is part of what makes Mark's introduction so incredibly interesting and why I hope that you will join us in small groups and follow us on the reading plan because you'll see this again and again, that Mark goes to great lengths to show you that Christianity isn't actually something new, but that in Jesus's arrival, everything that God had always promised is finally coming to pass. In fact, in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, we learn that before this great and awesome day of the Lord, God's going to send another prophet in the spirit of Elijah, who's the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Now take a look back at verse six. Remember how I said that Mark was in a hurry? Now why would somebody who is in a hurry take the time to tell you about somebody's dietary habits and their clothing? Because Elijah in the Old Testament, he wore camel's hair. He ate locusts. Mark wants you to know that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that promise in Malachi. Not only that, but Mark tells us that John the Baptist, he's the fulfillment of this voice crying out in the wilderness from Isaiah 40, which is what we read during our opening scripture. And in that text, Isaiah prophesies not just that the Christ would come, this promised human king, but that the Lord himself is going to come to Jerusalem and the whole world will see his glory. So who is this guy? In the very first verse, Mark declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This man who walked amongst us that I knew, Mark is saying personally, he was the God who made everything contained in a person. He was the infinite become finite, the holy, unapproachable God become a first century Palestinian Jew to usher in the kingdom of God and to rescue and to redeem the whole world. These are pretty astonishing claims. Let's continue. Verse seven, and he, John, preached saying after me, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. Now, another history lesson here. I'm sorry for so many. This is an intro, so I feel like I got to get them all out of the way around one. I promise the rest of these won't have as much of this. But before a Jewish person was allowed to enter the temple, they had to ceremonially wash their hands. And this washing, along with others, was meant to remind them of their call to be holy and how they had to be cleansed before they could stand before their holy God. But Gentiles, and that's anybody who wasn't born a Jew, who wanted to worship God, had to be baptized completely from head to toe, thoroughly cleansed, in order for them to be made fit for the presence of God. This never happened to a Jew because they were already considered by birth clean. And this is what makes John's ministry so startling. Because what John is saying is that everyone is unclean. That every single person no matter what family they were born into, no matter their pedigree or their religious background, 
They need to repent and be cleansed in order to stand before God. The people who come out to John, they know that something's wrong, right? They know that they're broken. They were filled with longing, and they didn't know how to fix it. There's an article uh, that came out in the New York Times about two weeks ago called The Real Campus Scourge. And I want you to listen to the way that this guy, Frank Bruni, describes a similar feeling uh, on college campuses today. College isn't sold to teenagers as just any place or passage. It's a godly painted promise. The time of their lives and the disparity between myth and reality startles so many of them. Harry Rockland Miller who just retired as the director for the Center of Counseling and Psychological Health at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, told me the emblematic story of a freshman he treated. He was 18. He came to school and was invited to a party his first weekend, and he didn't know anybody, so he started to drink. He drank way too much and ended up lying on a bench in his residential hall feeling very sick. Nobody stopped and said, how are you doing? Are you okay? And he felt so isolated. And when he came in to speak with me the next day, the thing that struck, them, struck him, what he said was, there I was alone with all these people around. Alone with all these people around. In a survey of nearly 28,000 students on 51 campuses by the American College Health Association last year, more than 60% said that they had felt very lonely in the previous 12 months. Nearly 30% said that they had felt that way in the previous two weeks, end quote. Now, some of you guys, I know you're coming back to school and you're hurting because maybe you put your hopes and dreams into a relationship that didn't work out. Or maybe you put it into a relationship that did work out, but it didn't deliver on the promises that you thought that it would. Or maybe you came to college, you thought that if I could just make it in this field, or if I could just make it into this fraternity or sorority, if I could just make it onto the field, then I'll know that I've made it. If I could just get this internship, then I'll know that I've arrived. And maybe you had this subconscious thought in your heart, in your mind. I feel restless right now, but once I have that, once I get there, maybe I won't feel that way any longer. But you see, the problem with our hearts, if you haven't grasped it yet, is as soon as we have that thing, the thing that we were building our hopes and dreams upon, we realize that it doesn't actually satisfy. It doesn't actually deliver on any of the promises that it offered to us. And we think that there must be something wrong with it instead of realizing that there's something wrong with us. I want you to listen to how author David Foster Wallace, himself no Christian, put it. Here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will find that you feel always ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And the way that the great theologian Augustine put it is, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, God. Why won't anything else satisfy? Because God created us in such a way that your deepest joy and longing, it can be only found in his presence, in following his commands and law. But the problem is that we all know that we haven't done that, right? That we're broken and we don't know how to fix ourselves. We don't know how to wash ourselves. Just like those who came to John to be baptized, we are on the outside looking in, understanding our own brokenness and desperately wishing that there was some way for us to be made clean. And so these people coming to John, they turn to him for answers. And what does John say? He says, there's one coming who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. But then in verse 14, the absolutely unthinkable thing happens says, now after John was arrested, John was the first prophet in 400 to 600 years. He's saying, I am here and there's one coming after me. But then he gets arrested. And it seems like the whole plan is falling apart all again. But what happens? Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is saying the time is now. Everything that God has ever promised about the kingdom of God, it's finally coming true. This is the turning point in all of human history. But what's amazing is Jesus doesn't call an army to start a revolution, right? Instead, he turns and he calls sinners to repent. He doesn't come like other spiritual teachers offering a path or instruction or wisdom. He proclaims a gospel. He brings good news. And what does that mean? It means absolutely everything. Because instead of giving people a direction about how to clean up their lives in order that they might be acceptable to God, that they might be washed clean, that all their longings might be fulfilled, what Jesus tells us is that something has already happened. Something outside of them, outside of us, has been done for us. All you have to do to be a part of the kingdom of God is to lay down all the other ways that you've tried to build your own kingdom to set aside all the other things that you've looked to for meaning, for life, and for purpose, to lay down and repent of all the miserable reasons you and I have ever done any of the right things and simply believe that the holy God not only wants, not only can forgive sinners, but wants to forgive sinners. But how is that even possible? How can a truly holy God overlook our rebellion. Let's take a look back at verse 9. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And the question we ought to be asking here is, what was Jesus, the holy son of God, doing receiving a baptism for the forgiveness of sins? I mean, surely he didn't need to be forgiven of anything, right? No. This, my friends, is an inauguration. The humble king of absolutely everything has arrived. And Jesus understands that as king, he stands as representative for all of his people. His people are in bondage to a terrible enemy, one much worse than Rome, right? They are in bondage. We are in bondage to sin and death. And so to begin his ministry, Jesus goes out into the water on our behalf in order that our sins might be poured out on his perfection. Just like 2 Corinthians 5.21 will say, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Because the beauty of the gospel, the whole of it, is that when God now looks at us in Christ, he says to us exactly what he says to Jesus here. Because of what Jesus did, you and I, we are God's beloved. And King Jesus knows that in, for in, order, in order for us to be saved and for God's kingdom to come, that Satan has to be overthrown. But the victory can't be achieved in the ordinary ways, no. Even as he enters the water, Jesus' face is already set towards Jerusalem because the victory of the kingdom of God can only come through a cross. So who is this guy? Jesus is the promised one. He's the God who made everything. He is the king over everything who loves you so much that he would do absolutely anything to rescue you. And why did he come? to overthrow the rule of sin, suffering, and death, to bind up broken hearts, to wipe away every tear from every eye, to rescue broken sinners and rebels and bring them into God's own royal family where they can be forever loved and accepted in him. What does that mean for you and I? If you're still looking into this whole Jesus thing, stick around. Keep investigating whether these things are true because it is truly the most important question you'll ever wrestle with. And I promise you, the story only gets better from here. And better yet, read it for yourself. And if you're a Christian here, I beg you to dig deep into God's word and ask him for fresh eyes to fall in love with Jesus and to commit to him as king and Lord, no matter what it costs. Remember those words of David Foster Wallace. Anything else that you worship will eat you alive. Why not surrender everything for the humble king who surrendered all his rights that he might have you as his own. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. I know in my heart um, all of the ways that I've run from you my whole life by running to other people's approval, by running to power, to, by running to control, by running to pleasure. 
God, I thank you that at just the right time, you sent Christ Jesus to die for me, a sinner. God, I pray for every person in this room that you would give us fresh eyes to see who Jesus is and why he's worth following. God, I pray that nothing would distract us from the quest of understanding whether or not these things are true. Lord, show us who you are. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.